Children, you can be dismissed. Thank you, CL. They know me cry because we don't send them out. Well, uh, I want to thank the worship team for leading us in worship this morning and uh, what a joy it is. Uh, have a few new uh, musicians uh, playing this morning, and uh, so we, we are thankful uh, for that. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter number 7. It's been about a month since we've been in the Gospel of John. I want to get back into it. Uh, and um, I'm going to read the first 13 verses when you find your place. And uh, you can just follow along with me as I read. <clears throat> uh, some of you may be wondering, well, why do... Why does uh, a, a guy get up and read, and then he pray, and then I get up and I read, and then I pray, and it's something else? And well, it's, we're Bible people, uh, for one, uh, and we have been working our way through Psalms 119 as a reminder of the of the blessedness of God's word to the people of God, uh, what it is to us, and how God speaks to us and works in us through that. And so it's good to do that uh, as uh, as the men come up and lead us week after week. Um, but I also want to read uh, where we're at. Uh, so that's why we do it the way we do it. Uh, so just follow along with me. I'll read the first 13 verses. We'll look at more than that this morning. But uh, just for the sake of, um, of having a, a foundation, let me just read these first 13 verses. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast, and I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading people astray, leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Uh, pray with me one more time, would you? Please. Father, we come this morning so thankful for the time we can lift up our voices. We can set and hear the word being read to us. Lord, we can be led in prayer to your throne. And again, we come with our hearts open. I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Let the, your spirit work in our lives in the ways in which we need it most. I think even as we gather this morning, we come a little bit 
more joyful with the sunshine and the warmth and all those things like that and how that does make our heart glad. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word, the, uh, the glory of your Son may make our spirits glad this morning. And Father, we pray that you would work among us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. <clears throat> We've been going through the Gospel of John looking at the glory of Jesus Christ. That's John's intent and purpose to reveal that glory that he himself experienced, being one of his close disciples. Uh, and we have seen that through six chapters so far, and here we are in chapter number seven. As I was trying to figure out... Um, Putting all of this together, these longer narratives are more difficult uh, just to, not to understand, but really to, um, to try to boil down to where I can keep you here less than two hours. And I, I realize I am getting uh, longer winded at times. But nevertheless, let me begin this way, uh, just more of a modern context uh, I was doing some looking around on the internet and found back in 2015 that 62% of adults in America uh, had made some kind of personal commitment to Jesus Christ, which they uh, believe is still important to them uh, to that day. Now think about that statement. 62% of Americans, not only believing Jesus was a real person, but had actually made a personal commitment to him that, uh, that they felt was still important. Uh, only 63% of those uh, taking that survey, 63% of the 62% said they will go to heaven because they had confessed their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Well, that's still pretty good. That's still a pretty high number, yet... It is remarkable to say you have this personal commitment to Christ and miss some of the, the reality of why Christ came and what it means to be saved. In 2018, Barna put out a study and said nine out of ten people believed in God. That's pretty good in America. Uh, you wouldn't think so when you turn on your TV. And yet only 56% of those in that survey believed in the God of the Bible. The majority, or, or at least the, the, the other side of that equation, said, yeah, we believe in a higher power, something other than uh, what these guys over here are talking about. Ligonier Ministry does a, the state of theology every so often. They put out a survey, and in 2020, they showed sort of the, the progression that uh, many of the other researchers are finding, and that is the belief in God is decreasing, and the, the actual substance of what people believe when they talk about God and Jesus is uh, decreasing and becoming more and more confusing. 2020, they said 30% of confessing evangelicals, uh, evangelicals, that's those who profess the kind of basic tenets of the faith, uh, 30% of them believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. Now, that's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, where are you going to go and, and, and where are you going to go to church when half the churches that confess to believe the Bible and follow Jesus don't even actually really understand who Jesus is? 
You may have experienced in having someone come and knock on your door, two of them, they go by twos, it's biblical, right? By twos, they send them out nicely dressed, maybe on a bicycle, not a car, with a little gold tag on their collar talking about elder this and and elder so-and-so, and they come knocking on the door wanting to talk to you about Jesus and about heaven and salvation and about apostles and all sorts of things. And at first you may, if you don't know anything about these zealous individuals, you may think, we're all on the same page. I love Jesus, and I love the Bible, and I love heaven and, and talking about being saved. But you come very quickly into the conversation and realize that there's something different going on between what we're saying. I mean, we're saying some same words, we're saying some of the same things, but we're, well, there's a great big disconnect about what we mean. All that to show as you look at the world we live in, there's a lot of confusion when it comes to who Jesus is. Now, I don't know what the Galilee polls were showing in John's day, but I think he, more than any other apostle or more than any other um, gospel writer, wants us to get a, a feel not only of what Jesus did in his ministry, but the reaction and, and really what's going on with the people in his day. You see this kind of contrast back and forth. And chapter number 7 is a remarkable chapter. Jesus makes a, a bold declaration we'll look at next week and at, later on in 37 through 39. Um, but as he's building up to that, centered on both sides of that is really the response to him. What's going on with, with the multitude and how do they understand him? Uh, whatever side they stand on, John wants us to understand in his day, in Jesus' day, at this point in his ministry, he was the center of focus. And sometimes we sit around and talk about things and, and what's on our mind. And maybe you did that during the pandemic. Every time you sat down and you talked with someone, can you believe? And so you went on. Well, that was the focus in Jesus' day. It was he, he himself, who was the center of their conversations, as we see presented to us in the text. And surrounding that conversation, John wants us to understand that there was confusion and there was conflict, and Jesus steps into the middle of both confusion and conflict, and he seeks to give some clarity. And so we're going to work our way through it that way this morning as we look at this. Uh, This is a time of the Feast of Booths, chapter uh, 7, verse 2 tells us, the Feast of Tabernacles, your translation may say, as a festival in Israel, it was the most beloved of three festivals uh, for the Jewish people during this time. Josephus tells us uh, they loved it more than they did the others. It was one of three pilgrim festivals where the men would have to come and, uh, and worship there and offer sacrifices, things like that. Uh, and the nation of Israel. And so um, this kind of what's going on behind this, and I'll give more detail about this as we get into the significance of that later on when he says, I am the, uh, when he says, I am the living water, uh, verse number 37 through 38. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But needless to say, Jerusalem was packed uh, with people from out of town and Uh, coming and going and uh, setting up tents and booths and things everywhere. As this was going on, that's the context of what is going on there. It's been six months since uh, the end of chapter number 6, verse 
the end of that and here in the beginning of chapter number 7. So with that in mind, kind of a little bit of a background, we begin this, verse number 1, and he reminds us uh, at, the, at the start of this, the conflict surrounding Jesus with the Jews. Notice again, verse number 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. That's a pretty strong language. In fact, Mark says they were seeking to destroy him. Uh, just imagine uh, that for, your mo- for, your, uh, for a moment in your mind that the religious leaders of his day, the people uh, that were meant to teach the people the law and, and meant to be the pure followers of Moses and all of those when the Son of God comes, when he comes preaching the word of God to them, uh, their response is murder. Uh, they could not bear with him, showing us this kind of animosity that was growing among uh, the people in Jesus' day, uh, the leaders. And I think that's what the Jews mean here. It means the leaders uh, of the, the nation, Pharisees in particular, but it would involve the Sadducees and, and the Herodians and others as well as we see. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at it at that reality that Christ unites people, didn't we? And we said that gospel brings people together. I believe that's true, even here in verse number one. Would you? In fact, what we find in uh, the gospel of Mark, uh, that the Pharisees immediately after Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath day went forth to to. Um, converse with the Herodians, another different group, and I'll explain those in a moment, and they were seeking to put Jesus to death. Let me just explain for those of you that may not know and and many of you that's studied the Bible or or been familiar with these terms or or understand what was going on. The Sadducees were a group of people in Israel, the the elite. These were the guys who lived on the, the, the street that you wouldn't look for a house. Uh, you would not eat where they ate. You would not uh, shop where they shopped. They were just the elite of the nation of Israel. Uh, they were associated with a high priestly office and sort of ran the whole thing. It was kind of a, a mafia group going on there. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And as you were taught in Sunday school, some of you, that's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And uh, you're welcome. They rejected the oral traditions of the fathers, and so the, they didn't care what rabbi said so-and-so and whatever he said. They don't care. Uh, their authority was the, the first five books of Moses, considered the Pentateuch or the Torah, the law, and so that's kind of where they got their basis, and, and even that was more in a serving manner for their political ends. Uh, they were constantly in warfare with the Pharisees. Now, many of you know who the Pharisees are because we read about them more often in the Bible. Uh, They were a very zealous group of people. They were uh, seeking to be obedient to the law and all the oral traditions that come down from the law. Uh, During the time of the Maccabean Revolt, this group of purists, if you could call them that, wanted to wanted to really keep the law of God. They saw the, the, the slack kind of religious zeal of their day, and so they, they pursued rigorously how to obey the law and to be righteous according to the law. 
They were the religious guys. They're the people you go ask questions about when it comes to uh, what to do and, and what does the Bible say. They were the go-to examples. And another group that we find during Jesus' day was those who were referred to as the Herodians. They were the political uh, movers, the liberals of the uh, of the day in Jesus' time. Not really associated with all that. They were in power. They, they supported Herod and the dynasty of Herod. And so they were considered uh, pretty much despised by both Pharisees and Sadducees. Each of these groups are fighting within Israel for control and power. Uh, and they were fighting one another. Uh, but Mark tells us, and I think that's implied here in John chapter number 7, that they come together in agreement on a common enemy. No agreement in any other way, no, no foundation for fellowship or unity among them except for this one person, this one agenda, and that is Jesus Christ is a troublemaker. He is threatening our position and power. We've got to get rid of him. We see that in politics often, uh, uh, that your enemy and my enemy, and so we can just come together and agree on that sort of thing. The Bible says it was not a passive thought that they had towards Jesus. It wasn't that they just disdained him and and didn't care about him. They didn't like what he said. Uh, He says here clearly in verse number one that they went about seeking to kill him. What would cause you to want to murder someone? Don't answer that right now. You can think about that later in your devotions as you confess. What did Jesus do to merit such hostility towards him? Uh, to be, uh, to warrant, to to put him to death, to murder him, blaspheme God. Did he spit on the Torah in the in the temple courtyard? Uh, did he do some kind of desecration there as he taught the times that he was in the temple? What would merit this response? Well, the Bible tells us. And Mark, he healed a man who had a withered hand on Sunday or on Saturday, the Sabbath. Here in our text, he tells us, you're seeking to kill me. And you see that in verse number 19. Why are you seeking to kill me? Is it because he made a whole man or a man whole on the Sabbath? Verse number 23. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? They were seeking to kill him, really, because he healed somebody on the Sabbath? And you say, well, there's got to be more to that. Well, sometimes the, the best answer is the easiest and the simplest solution. There isn't. You see here this kind of animosity, this conflict when it comes to Christ, this coming out of chapter number 6 and verse number 7. And basically what John does is he doesn't want you to be surprised when you get to John chapter number 18. When they literally put him to death. We should not be surprised because he reminds us in the, in the beginning of this that, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
So as we read the gospel accounts, we, we see that not only was he rejected and down looked, or looked down upon, but, but he was literally taken by men, men of his own people and, and men of the Gentiles, and put to death. We would not and should not be surprised if he was here in our day that the response would not be the same, or the response would be the same. Not only is there a conflict surrounding this Jesus and all that he's doing, but there's confusion. Notice with me how John brings this out. Verse number three. So his brothers said to him, as brothers, they're given to us, the names of them are given to us in Mark chapter number six, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and his sisters. I had to look that up too, so it's okay uh, if you didn't know that. But his brothers here are, are trying to help him out. They become his kind of platform coaches. They want to help him, help him kind of do a restart. After all, when we left in chapter number 6, that Jesus went from 20,000 people, almost feeding the 5,000. They're following him the next day, and he goes to the next side of the sea, and they're all sitting there waiting for him. So he goes from almost 20,000 people to to just a few. In fact, the past six months has been something of him ministering with his few disciples in that area, doing the miracles and other stuff that he was doing. But John is bringing a contrast. He starts out with this great number. He ends with a, great, with a few that even some of his own followers have left him and deserted him, those who have made some kind of formal commitment to follow Jesus. And, and what in the world is going on? So his brothers have a good idea. That's what brothers do. They help you out. If you want to be known, Jesus, you're going about it all the wrong way. Jerusalem is the place you ought to be. Some of you got that jingle from the Beverly Hillbillies in your head at that moment, didn't you? California is the place you ought to be. Maybe you shouldn't say everything that comes to your mind, right? <clears throat> That's terrible. <laughs> Anyway, go to Jerusalem. That's where it's happening. That's where all the people are. I mean, you've got the, the, the Jews from all over the world coming to Jerusalem. If you want to be known, go show yourself there. That's where you need to get a following. Uh, he says that in, in verse number 3. Leave here. Immediately get, be going from here that your disciples may see the works you're doing. Let them see what's up with you and what you've been doing. Go do something in a big way. You're in the wrong place. You need to be in Jerusalem. After all, if you want to be known, don't hide yourself in the backwaters of, of Galilee. Go up to Jerusalem and show yourself to the world. Again, many disciples have left him and brothers are making this statement. Maybe it seems like they're just trying to help him out. Your your plan or whatever you got going on here isn't working. Your marketed strategy, Jesus, is just not. It's just falling flat. You keep losing more people than you gain. So go to Jerusalem, show them something. Now, it's a remarkable statement here by his brothers in John's estimation of them. And I want you to put it in the context. I'll read it for you here in verse number 5. But I want you to put it in the context of this. There has been men. 
who have literally left their business and their family. And they've walked away from it to follow Jesus. And hearing him preach and seeing what he's done. And they've left it all to follow him. Yet his own family, those who should know him best, those who grew up with him, those who have most familiar with him in a way, show that they don't know him at all. Notice verse number 5. They were saying that necessarily to be helpful, not in the right way. He says in verse 5, For not even his brothers believed in him. They did not know him. They did not believe in him. It's not that they, they didn't maybe have an interest in him. They were not fascinated by the things that he did. We do know the Bible tells us that at one point they come to him trying to take him by force thinking he was crazy. You find that in Mark in both accounts, they, they come to get him, him and his family trying to get Jesus out of the multitude. He's casting out demons and healing people and preaching and they're like, this guy's lost his mind. We've got to get him out and take him home. That's what you do with crazy people. You take them home. And they said no. Later on, they come and stand outside, and as they stand outside the multitude, the people are saying, your family's out here looking for you. And he says, who is my family but those who believe? They are my family. It is remarkable to see this kind of contrast, even in his own family. Those closest to him would know him, and yet they don't. They don't believe. They're confused about who he is. They're confused about what he's come to do. They don't trust him as a Messiah. They don't trust him as their own Savior. Uh, There's a disconnect in their own life. That struggle with the disciples earlier in chapter number 6, where many of them no longer walk with him, is true of his own brothers as well. And that reminds us there is a kind of belief that's unbelief that seeks to be satisfied through our senses that will never be. You've heard it just as well as I have and maybe even said it yourselves. Let me see something. Let me see some proof and tangible evidence. Let God speak out of heaven and, and call me and call my name and then I will believe. I recall working with a a gentleman who claimed to be agnostic or he claimed to be a lot of things and and I'm not sure if he knew where he was other than I just want to hold God in 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 a skeptic light. I want to be close enough to believing and rejecting where I don't have to decide anything. That's basically what that agnostic is anyway, isn't it? Just live in a constant state of not sure. I was speaking to him one day and as he was trying to hold out of uh, 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 of whether he wanted to settle whether God was real or not. I was speaking to him. I said, you ought to pray and ask God to help you. If the issue is you don't understand, if the issue is you don't believe and, and you're not sure, then pray and ask God to help you. Maybe he's there. Maybe he'll answer you. Of course, I, I believe he is there. And, and he says, no, I, he wouldn't do that. He's afraid he might answer. The problem was that he was set in his unbelief. 
was not enough to see. There's not enough to experience and go through in life. In fact, if we really comb through our own life's experience, we'd realize there's a thousand ways God has proven himself to us and a, and a million mercies that we've experienced in this lifetime. And, and none of those we are, we are open to, we've rejected because we're blind. In fact, the Pharisees saw a lame man that was healed, a withered hand that was restored. 5,000 people fed plus 15,000, 20, whatever number you want to go with. That's a lot of people with a small lunch. And yet in all of this, many still walked away. Let's just ask ourselves, if it is the case of seeing that helps us in our believing, if it is I have to have my senses verified, something tangible in that sense, then, then what do we do with the count of Exodus? Or in one sense, during the judgment of God on the people of Egypt, or the judgment of God on the people of Egypt, there was utter darkness that can be felt, the Bible says, and yet there was light, were where the nation of Israel was, Goshen. God delivers them with a strong hand. They they take a a great amount of wealth out of Egypt, saying, can I borrow this? You know, they're not going to bring it back, but it's kind of the language you see there. And, and, And they take all of this reward, and they come to this Red Sea, and God opens up these massive great walls of the Red Sea, and they walk on dry land. Dry land! Drowns an army. Some liberals say it was a shallow part of the sea, and the miracle in that case would be the fact that he could drown an army in an inch of water, I guess. I don't know how you want to take that. Surely this would be the generation of faith after all they've seen. But what does the Hebrew writer tell us? They did not mix what they hear with faith. They did not believe, and so they ended up 40 years of a funeral procession burying body after body after body because of unbelief. And the climax of that is when Moses is getting the law from God, they are violating every bit of it with a golden calf. And our modern-day senses with all their scientific abilities and all those things, we say, well, if we could just see something, then we believe. And the Bible says over and over, those who saw the most magnificent things have still had hardened hearts. God could bring them out of Egypt, but Egypt was still in their hearts. If you do not take the word of God... And you do not take the testimony of Christ found in the word of God and found in the gospel message, then there's nothing that will make you believe. Even his own brothers had seen magnificent things growing up with him. There's not one sin. He was sinless. I believe that. Do you? Couldn't put one sin on him. Not many years after being called to preach, I was trying to encourage my brother to go to church with me, and he made a statement once, and he says, I know who you are, the real you. Oh, that was chilling. (laughs) Because he did. And he wouldn't have to lie. But he didn't know who I was then. 
changed, washed, made new creation in Christ Jesus. What I'm saying here is you see this kind of constant idea of people seeing the miracles. They, they see all that Jesus did and yet they remain in their unbelief because it doesn't have anything with receiving. They've rejected the word. They've rejected his teaching and therefore their eyes are closed shut. That's confusion about who he is. Confusion about his ministry. In fact, Jesus says something of the, uh, this effect to them. You go to the feast, or verse number 6. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Now, there's pages of commentary uh, literature on just these few verses is jesus lying to his brothers because he does go up did he change his mind is he vacillating is he untrustworthy actually i think it was one uh, roman bishop or something justified his own back and forth because jesus was evidently here in this chapter well that was in the third century so i'm sure all of that's figured out now the best way to look at this uh, that i've understood Stood this, and I think easy for you to understand the difference in translation. Jesus is saying that my time in going to the feast is not at this moment. His time is in the Father's hands. He does all the things that the Father's commanded him to do. It doesn't matter what you do and when you go. Do whatever you want to, it doesn't matter. But as for me going to the feast, my time is not here. And, And there is this kind of rebuke. Uh, in, in saying that, my time for showing myself the way you want me to show myself is not yet come. I will reveal myself to the world. And in fact, he will believe it. And you can kind of mark that down. I don't know where to put it in your calendar. But he will show himself to the world in all of his glory. But his time, his season for that is not yet Basically, he's saying you go on up. The reason you can go on up is because the world doesn't hate you. You're one of its own. You're in your unbelief. You're just like the world. You, you may have differences and skirmishes about you, but at the heart of it, the world doesn't hate you. Again, people are trying to kill him in one sense, and in the other, you see the world hates him. Verse number 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it. That's a pretty strong language to talk about being hated by the world. And can I say, a a Jesus that is of our own making, a Jesus that is tame, or a Jesus that is sort of looks more and more like us, is not hated. In fact, I think much of what we see in many churches who once were Bible-believing churches that's done left the, 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 the area of sound teaching has done that. They've taken Jesus and they, they kind of put him in sort of a Plato figure to where they can shape him and mold him to whatever they want. The world doesn't hate a, a Jesus that they like. That's not why they... they we may see some conflict in, in our day because, you know, after all... You have the chosen is popular. Uh, have a movie just come out with Jesus in the box office that's gotten fifty million so far. How can we say that the world hates him? 
I'm not saying you take that one way or another if you ever you want to do that. But notice what he says here. The world hates the Jesus, the real one, the one who he is. And the reason they hate him is because he is exposing the world for who they are. He is testifying to the world that its works are evil. Just by his own very righteousness, does he not expose our unrighteousness? The way he works and moves in the gospel narratives, does it not press against us? I know in one way it calls us and it puts in our heart that desire to want to do that and be that, but doesn't it expose the the failure to do that and be that? And not just in his life that he lived, which was sinless and perfect, but his teaching exposes us. Even here, he says, you're seeking to kill me because I did this good deed. And they think he's got a demon. And the word of God is that exposing mirror, which reminds us of our own sinfulness, our guiltiness before God. The cross itself is a declaration of our, our guilt and and our transgression against an almighty God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The fact that Jesus Christ had to be born in this world and die on a cross is a testimony to that fact. There is no other way to be justified before God. It testifies that there's no work that we can do that can be acceptable to God wherewith He can say, okay, now justify. Now, I will receive you because you did X and X and X. Instead, God has purposed in His will and according to His grace that He would lavish mercy and give grace and forgiveness to those who simply believe in Jesus. Isn't that a remarkable message? And isn't Jesus saying that you have to look away from yourselves and look away from what you can do and and look to me? And it is is in that declaration, that that exclusivity, that that the world hates him. And not only hate him, but hate all that's associated with him. I was sharing with someone yesterday that People do not hate the Bible because they come to it and all, they find all the evil and mean things it says. People hate the Bible because when they come to it, they find all the evil and mean things it exposes in themselves. And it leaves us in that place of what do we do with that? Either we reject that, we hate that, we put it away from us, we seek to kill it or rip it up, or we we come to that. We submit to that. We are cleansed by that. And there's only two responses. We see that in the life of Jesus. Some will come to him and some will believe his followers and, and those who says he has the words of eternal life. But a great multitude of people will respond in, in disdain and hatred. And, and he says not just speaking of his own people, but that's the, that's the way it is in the world. Why is he despised among the nations? Well, because he has come to convict the nations. Well, Calvin said this, and I think it's very interesting as and worth quoting here. He says, we learn from it also, from this passage, verse number seven, that so great is 
the pride natural to men that they flatter and applaud themselves in their vices. For they would not kindle into rage when they are reproved were it not that they are so blinded by excess love of themselves and on that account flatter themselves in their sin. Even among the vices of men, the chief and most dangerous is the pride and arrogance. And I think that could be the testimony here in verse number 7. There's confusion among the brothers and there's a confusion among the people at the feast. Verses 10 through 13, look at that with me quickly. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Oh, verse number 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while someone said, he is a good man. And others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. That idea of muttering uh, means that this kind of backroom talk, kind of kind of whispering, sort of arguing. There's a there's a note of arguing in that they were arguing arguing in hushed tones among themselves uh, who this Jesus is. Some were saying, "Well, he's a good man. He did good things. Evidently, he healed people. He fed people. Surely he is a good man." Well, they were partly right. And then others were saying, no, he's leading people astray. Think about that statement, what they were saying of him. They were saying he was deceptive. He was a false teacher. What he was saying and what he was doing was wicked. It was sinful. Evidently, if you're leading people astray from the faith and from God, then, uh, then it would be blasphemous to do that. And they were saying, some were saying he was a good man. Others responding back, no, he was he was. He was leading people away. He was deceptive. Others said he had a demon in him. Verse number 20, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. They they have said that about him very often. Notice down in verse number 25, yet others, after hearing him teach and preach, some of them were saying, is this not the man they were seeking to kill? Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? So here's your conspiracy theorists in the group. And they were saying, well, you know, he's not arrested. He's in the public. Do they know something we don't know? Maybe he is the Messiah. And then others respond to that. And you know me and know where I come from. Or verse number 27. But we know where this man comes from. When Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And and basically you see this kind of what? what There's no other way to sum this up but confusion. It's like no one can get a handle on who he is. Well, we know where he's from, but when Christ appears, he'll just come out of nowhere with no, no background. We won't, he'll just come on the scene. We won't know where he's from. So there's confusion among his own family members. There's confusion among the people in the feast. And that goes on to the end of the chapter. No need to go through all that. I just want to speak about the clarity here, uh, and we'll finish with that, the clarity of Jesus as he's building up uh, to that last day of the feast. Um, Verse number 37, we won't get into that, but I want to say this. Uh, Look back in verse number 14. You remember his disciples were saying, if you want a following, you want your disciples to stick with you, go do something open in public. 
I mean, get on Facebook and YouTube and, and Instagram, whatever their version of that, Camelgram, whatever their version of that was in their day, right? Get on there and make it public. And so how does Jesus respond to that? Well, he goes secretly. He doesn't go according to their agenda because he's not on man's agenda. He's not on man's time. He's on the Father's time. But he doesn't come to do a great show. That's what the world wants. It's what the unbelievers to be satisfied, to, to be entertained in some way. Verse number 14 he says about the middle of the feast, the feast was seven days long and they had an eighth day celebration that was like a climax. And so there's a question whether later on it's the seventh or the eighth day, but somewhere midway through the feast, uh, he comes up and what does he do? Notice he said he started teaching. He began to explain so that they would no longer be confused, so they wouldn't be in the dark. He began to tell them who he is and what the will of God is. He began to explain to them what God has called him to do and sent him to do. Now, we don't have the sermon that he taught, but we assume that those are the things that he has continually taught, and that's what he's been teaching. He's come to teach about God and reveal God to them through himself. He was teaching them. And I go again and say, if we will not receive the word of Christ, then we'll never be satisfied with signs. We'll never be satisfied. In fact, we see that in verse number 31, don't we? And, and, and not to belabor that point, but we live in an age where it must be seen and verified in that way. Notice verse number 34, 31. Now, after all that he said and all that he did and, and all that he has shown himself up to this point, actually people are starting to believe on him. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Do you see what John is saying here? They believe on him, that, that he is a messenger sent from God, but they're still waiting out for the Messiah to come. This man's exciting. His ministry is, 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 is really moving along. I was going to say some reference, but it's like really old, so I forget that. But when the Messiah comes, what does that tell us? Even at the end of the day, they still did not understand who he was. At the end of the day, they still lived in unbelief. Some kind of association, some kind of fondness, some kind of loose commitment to him, whatever it was. But at the end of the day, they were saying, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll do even more than this. Got to be even greater than what it is now. And so Jesus comes teaching. And he reveals himself in two ways and, and down to verse number 24. And, and we'll close with that because it really opens us up for what he will say next week. And the first is, he wants them to understand what I am teaching you, what I am saying to you is from God. Notice verse 15. He says, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is, this man has, uh, how is it this man has his uh, learning when he has never studied? And so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will do the will of 
if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own authority. And what is he saying simply to us is what he taught and even the bold, audacious claims that would have been made in his day, he's saying these are the very words of God. I am not seeking my own glory. It is God, the Father, who is glorifying from him. His message, all that he said, even his word, is at the will of God. All that he has come to bring them, all that he has said about the Father and about being restored to the Father and about the Son himself, all of that is is from God. He's not speaking to to make much of himself. He is speaking to make much of God. He's revealing what God has declared for him to reveal. But why didn't they get it? If he is just unfolding the word of God for them in front of them, why didn't they get it? Well, the truth is found here in verse number 17, isn't it? If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Why did they not get it? Because they did not want God. Their desire was not God. Their their delight, what they were pursuing was not God's will because if it had been God's will, they would have understood that Jesus was speaking on God's behalf and it come from God. And that's the problem we have in our day. Why, why don't people get it? Why do they go about and do what they want to do? Why, when the gospel is preached and this offer of grace is given to the world, why won't they take it and receive it? It's because they didn't want God. And they don't want the will of God. Why such confusion? They read their Bibles in our day and other, hear other people quote it and uh, think to themselves, this is very archaic and evil and harsh and silly or whatever it is they think. And, and it is because at the very heart of what's going on is the rejection of God. In fact, a humanist has summed it up saying what many people won't say in America today. And since they're atheists, they don't have no fear for saying it. Speaking of the word of God, the book was written solely by humans in an ignorant, superstitious, and cruel age. (laughs) Just tell us how you really feel about history. They believe that because the writers of the Bible lived in unenlightened, they, speaking of humanists, believe that because the writers of the Bible lived in an unenlightened era, the book contains many errors. And that's not the problem. He goes on to say, and harmful teachings. And that's on the American Humanist of America website, if you want to know what they really think about the Bible. Jesus says what lies at the root of their unbelief is that they do not desire to do God's will. Because it is God's will that men everywhere, women everywhere, repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in chapter number 6, the will of the Father is this, the work of the Father is this, that you believe in the Son whom the Father has sent. Because no one desires that, no one wants that, no one, no one connects the fact that Jesus is from God. And we should be honest, in our day, men do not come in droves to the cross because they do not want God. 
but some do come. Isn't that amazing to think of? And why is that? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And we were all in that situation at one point in our lives. We were all bent going our own way. We were all doing our own thing. We were all sinning against God. And yet in the midst of that, God in his mercy quickened us, made us alive in Christ Jesus. Opening our eyes to see and our hearts to to believe it is God who has worked in us to to help us to see if anyone will if anyone's will is to do God's will he will know whether the teaching is from God so first of all Jesus clarity is that his teaching is from God and secondly he wants them to understand verse number 29 that he himself has been sent by God and notice <clears throat> They say they know where he's come from and, and talking about the Messiah. And, and verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and know where I come from, but I come not on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him. He sent me. There is a sense where he is saying that, that he has mission and his ministry has been commissioned by God. He's not a loose cannon. He's not going around doing whatever he wants to do. He is, he is sent by God to the multitudes to preach the kingdom of God. That's true. But we've read the first of John 1, haven't we? Not as he's sent by God, what we might see in this prophetic form, but he's sent by God from face to face with God from eternity past to enter into our flesh and dwell among us. They know him in some kind of earthly realm, but there's much, much more about him that they do not see and they do not know you know that's the joy of being in christ and being in fellowship with god we spend a lifetime and and really an eternity unpacking the fullness and the beauty and the amazement and the wonder of who christ is truly god and truly man they thought of him as being demon possessed they thought of him as being a rogue and a blasphemer and a deceiver and all this confusion, he reminds them as he reminds us again that his teaching is from the Father just as he himself has come from the Father. We'll see the significance of that next week, but what a good reminder uh, for us to meditate on uh, this week as we go about our week. A question is to you, as it is every week really, uh, do you know him? Do you have a clarity of who he is in your life? Are you like the multitude, just kind of confused and doesn't matter, just throw your hands up and just kind of apathetic? Yeah, know that God has sent Jesus into the, into the world, that, that he would die on a cross on a, on a, on a ex, with an execution that you and I deserve because you and I have sinned against God, we've all sinned against his glory. We've all fallen short of his glory. And the reason the Father sent him into the world is so that if you would but look to him, if you would come to him by faith, repenting of your sins, putting your faith and trust in Christ, you would be saved. That's the gift uh, that God has sent into the world in John 3.16, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, in some way, church, we continue to give that same blessing, that same reality, or at least the substance of that reality to others as we share the gospel, don't we? Saying, this is where God is. This is what has come from God. His son, which brings life, forgiveness, and fellowship. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning.